Grab your Bibles. Make your way to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 10 this morning, looking in verses 17 through 24. Before we start, I want to thank Mike for filling in last week. That was a very short notice he got. It was about 7.30 in the morning where I sent out a rescue text for someone to bring the word, and, and, and I appreciate him jumping on that. <clears throat> if uh, you weren't here a couple weeks ago, we began Luke chapter 10 and kind of needed to get caught up what is taking place within this particular passage in this particular chapter. At the beginning of chapter 10, you can read it later if you like, Jesus sends out a group of 72 individuals to go out and do the kingdom's work and to do ministry. And again, if you look at these, the instructions Jesus gives at the beginning of this chapter, he gives very specific instructions on what these individuals were to do, but also warnings on what they may encounter as they go out and do the ministry. Now, we aren't told who these 72 or 70 individuals were. We aren't told what cities or villages uh, that Jesus sent them to. But our passage this morning deals with their return to Jesus And we find joy, joy throughout this entire passage. They came back and they were filled with joy. And then we find Jesus being filled with joy and rejoicing when they give him the news of what they encountered as they were out on the mission field. And then Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and tells them that they should also have joy because they are blessed in the time that they're living in. And for that reason, our passage this morning, our sermon this morning, is titled, A Reason for Joy has become this Christmas season. This isn't going to be a Christmas message, but I know we talk about having joy during this time of year, and we're going to find some things throughout this passage that it tells us why we should have a a reason for joy. Uh, Let's begin reading. We'll begin in verse 17. We're going to work our way through verse 24. And the word of the Lord says, the 72 returned with joy. Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven." In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And turning to disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's pray together and we'll get through this. Father, we come before you and we thank you for the salvation you have given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Spirit that dwells inside of us and that is in this place. We thank you we gather in your name And the promise that you are in our midst and we are in your midst. Father, I pray right now that you just uh, get me out of the way. Don't let me take away from your glory. Lord, use me as an instrument of your righteousness. 
I pray you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart that's ready to accept what you want to lay before us this morning. And Father, I pray that in Jesus' name we would leave this place with more joy than we came. Thank you for allowing us to gather in your name. Thank you for allowing us to worship you. We thank you for allowing us to be changed by you in this moment. So guide and lead us as our shepherd through this passage. Open it up as you did to your disciples by the power of your spirit. And Father, be glorified. Let your kingdom and will be done in this place. And I pray for forgiveness where I failed you. And Lord, we know that we all fail you at times, but we thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we thank you for your discipline as well. Again, guide and lead us. Be glorified and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to start with the first part of our passage, going back to verse 17. Hopefully you have your Bibles open, you're looking. It begins right off the bat, verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. And if you read 70 in your version of Scripture, you can look at a notation going back earlier in this chapter that uh, some of the gospel or some of the manuscripts we have of Luke, some say 70 and some say 72. And so we're not exactly sure which number it was, but we know it was a large group of people that Jesus sent out in pairs. And if you weren't here a couple weeks ago when we began walking through this particular chapter to kind of get caught up on what is taking place, Jesus sends out these individuals, most likely, well, they were men. He would have sent out men to do the ministry at this particular time because that was the culture. And he tells them they're going to go out and the work is too great for them to do. He tells them they're going to go out and he gives them instructions, but they weren't really positive instructions. The work is too great, so you're going to have to pray for God to send laborers to come work with you in the harvest. They're told that they were going to be like defenseless lambs amongst the wolves. They were told not to take anything of excess with them as they were going to have to rely upon God and rely upon God to provide from the homes and the villages and the cities they were going to go to. They were told that they're in some cities and villages. They were going to be welcomed. But there's also a good chance they were going to be rejected. And they were given specific instructions if they were rejected on what they were to do to that home in that particular city. Luke doesn't give us any information on where these particular individuals went to. We don't know the names of the city. We don't know how long they were even, in fact, gone. All we know is they returned with joy. That word joy in verse 17 means they returned with delight. They returned with great gladness and happiness. And I imagine, I picture these individuals as they returned to Jesus after the instructions he gave them before he sent them out. I imagine their response to mine would be, that actually worked. I can't believe we actually accomplished something when we had all these things that seemed to be going against us. Their opening statement to Jesus gives us this sense that they were not only filled with joy, but they were filled with amazement. They said, Lord, which means master, even the demons are subject to us in your name. We aren't told if any of their parents were ever rejected in a town, but we are told when they came back to Jesus, they were completely amazed at what had transpired. And it gives us a reason that we have joy, is that we should have joy in doing the ministry. Now, I I have been in the ministry for a while, and some of you all have 
been in the ministry for a while, and, and so you know something that I'm getting ready to say is true. Ministry is hard work. It's time-consuming. It's tiring. There are times where I'll confess that in doing the ministry, I want to take a break. I want to stay home. That's not what happened last week. I did not call in hooky. Okay, you can ask Jamie. She'll give you all the details. But I found times that I just don't want to do what God has put on my heart to do. I don't want to be involved in the ministry. My other part of the confession is those times when I am struggling, and those times I've frequently seen God do something I never expected. And I was amazed, just like these 72, for the extraordinary things that God does in us and through us. I found those times when Satan shows up in my life, and I will just speak personally, in my life, and I am tempted to not do what God has called me to do, what he has commissioned to do, but then I go ahead and do it. I notice that God shows up in miraculous ways. We should have joy in doing ministry because it is then we are allowing God to use us beyond our abilities and beyond our own resources. These individuals return to Jesus after being told all the things to be aware of, and then they report how God did something beyond their expectations. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You should hear the joy and the amazement. Their, their statement in verse 17 is a place of unexpected. They understood what happened. It wasn't because of their capabilities or their power to do it on their own. They, they were filled with joy and amazement. And this is what ministry should do for our hearts. To be joy-filled and amazed that a holy God actually wants to use us for his glory and for his kingdom's work. That he has given us a spirit to live inside of us as his children that enables us to do things beyond our abilities and beyond our understanding and all for eternal results. This is what Paul meant when he wrote in 1 Corinthians, he says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. See, God wants to use us for incredible ways, and to do that, we have to be willing to get into the ministry. Jesus sent out these individuals as his ambassador to prepare the way for his arrival when he would visit the cities and the towns that we, he went, they went to. And today we have the same privilege when we engage in ministry. We are preparing the way for the return of the king of kings. That's ministry. And so we, as they went to prepare the way for Jesus' arrival, we are preparing the way for Jesus' return when he's going to come back and he's going to take his people home. We get to take on the ministry of Christ when we engage in the ministry of the kingdom. And I'm going to tell you, it's tiring, but it brings a great reward. There are many believers, I think, that need to change their mindset when it comes to ministry. Well, that's, someone else can do that. Well, I don't have time. I'm incapable. That's exactly the instructions Jesus gave these individuals. You are incapable. But you've got to make the time. And God will provide the resources for you. I 
have learned in the ministry that when we're engaged, and I'm not saying to be a pastor or to be a missionary, there's ministry within this church, there's ministry within this church family, there's ministry within this community and the communities that you belong to, but to be engaged in those things because God has empowered you and you get to do eternal results, eternal sprinklings, I like to call them. My dad came to know the Lord because of a neighbor. After his dad passed my, with my grandpa, who I never met, this neighbor took my dad under his wings. He took him to the baseball games and the baseball practices, and he'd have him come over into his garage, and they would talk, and he started taking him to church, and he got involved in RAs. And because this one individual, whom I never met, took the time to minister to my dad in a time of need, my dad came to know the Lord. And that result led to me and my brother coming to know the Lord. That resulted in my daughter and my son coming to know the Lord. And I pray that if they have kids, if they want kids, that that'll impact them. What I'm trying to say is there's a much bigger effect when we get into the ministry and we share the gospel than just what we see in front of us. You do not know, and I don't know, how many generations and how many families you will impact when you simply say, yes, Lord, use me. Be like the prophet Isaiah. Here I am, Lord, send me. Notice their exclamation of joy back in verse 17 wasn't based on what they did or what they were capable of doing. He said, the demons are subject to us in your name. Maybe this is why Luke doesn't give us the names of the individuals because they weren't going out in their names. They weren't going out with anything. Jesus said, don't take any money bag. Don't take any knapsack. Don't take any sandals. They were simply to go out in groups of two and to go out in the name of Jesus. And Jesus commands and commissions us as his people to do the exact same thing today. When we leave this place, Yeah, you may go to a restaurant, you may go home, but you have to understand when we leave this place, we go into the mission field in the name of Jesus Christ. He sends us out. We come here to be equipped, and then he empowers us and sends us out. And so we should have joy for the power. Because Jesus says, there's power in my name. And they understood there was power in your name. This is the only reason the demons would even listen to us. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We look back into the book of Revelation If you were to read through Revelation, you're going to notice a theme. Every heavenly being, every heavenly host is bowing down before Jesus because he alone is worthy of it. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, one of my favorite verses. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. The problem is, is I think too many believers... Too many Christians have fallen into the lie of the enemy that we are, in fact, powerless. There are too many believers and there are too many Christians who are living in spiritual defeat and being spiritually silent. But God tells us in his word the exact opposite of truth. 
The exact opposite is true, that we have a spirit of power, and through the spirit of God, we are capable of doing things beyond our abilities, beyond our resources, beyond our knowledge, beyond our training, beyond our education, because we're not relying upon what we bring to the table, but we're relying upon what God has given us. These individuals recognize this when they return to Jesus. It wasn't their abilities. It wasn't their reputation. It wasn't their resources. None of that defeated the enemy. It was the power of the name of Jesus Christ. And I have to remind myself, when Satan tries to come with his attacks, he's already been defeated. He has lost because Jesus Christ has won the victory. And the Bible tells us, if we are found in Jesus, hear this, Romans 8, 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Yeah, we're going to have our battles. We're going to have our things we go through. We're going to have our struggles. But if we're found in Jesus Christ, we have a spirit of power and we have become conquerors because Jesus Christ has already won the victory. That word conquerors there is Romans 8, 37. What that word means in the Greek is it means to prevail completely over. We have become conquerors. We prevail completely over because of the victory Jesus Christ has won. I wonder how many times I fail to live that way. How many times do we fail to live that way? You know, at times I do. But we're promised in God's word. We're reminded in God's word. Here is Nahum 1.3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And that power now lives inside of the life of a believer. The spirit of God. Because we are the temple of the living God. Well, as these individuals began to report to Jesus, all they had experienced, Jesus reminds them in verse 18 that he has already seen Satan's demise. And what's interesting about what Jesus says to them in verse 18, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That word fall in the Greek is written in the imperfect. And what that means is it is saying that it is something that is continually happening. Jesus has seen Satan fall, be banished from heaven, but he also sees Jesus continually falling, continually being defeated, continually having to give up. And though Satan may appear strong, he is constantly losing. So no wonder he throws such a big fit in our world. He is constantly losing to the power of the name of Jesus Christ. It's tough when you're on the losing end, isn't it? You ever been on a losing team? That's not fun. I know when Charlie and I coached football a couple years ago, we never won a game. Good coaching. We only scored twice in six games. Good plays. <laughs> it was a hard year. And the people on our team were getting discouraged. Actually wanted to quit in the fifth game. I'm not lying. One boy came up to me in tears and said, can we just call it? I had asked the director of the league, hey, can you just cancel our game next week because our boys are in fear, and I don't want them to go out there and get hurt. 
But if you've ever been on a losing team, you know how difficult it is, and that's the thing. Satan is on the losing team. He's lost. He's been defeated. And I think if we grasp this truth as we look out in our world, we can understand that we are walking in the victory parade because we've been saved. As we look out in the world and all the turmoil that Satan is doing, God says, go and take the victory message to them. There's ministry to be done. That phrase, serpents and scorpions, in verse 19, is to speak of things which are evil. It's not literal serpents or snakes or scorpions. And Jesus gives the promise there that the agents of the enemy will not be able to prevail against God's people because we are spiritually and eternally protected by God the Father. Notice what does, Jesus does in verse 20. He redirects their attention. As they're excited about how God used them and the power they witnessed and what they experienced over the demons, Jesus tells them not to rejoice in the fact that the demons have submitted to them in his name, but instead, verse 20, rejoice that your names are written in heaven, which tells us we're to have joy for eternity. First, Jesus tells them, hey, Satan's already been defeated. Then he reminds these individuals and us that we shouldn't be amazed about the power of God over Satan. He kicked him out of his kingdom. Rather, Jesus says, you should be amazed and joy-filled because the holy God has adopted you as his children. He has claimed you as his own. The writing there, that the names are written in heaven at the end of verse 20. It means this. It means we belong to God. And there is nothing that can separate us or conquer over us because we are God's children. He claims us. He knows us. He loves us. The joy these individuals and we are to have is not in the power, but in the possession of eternal life and the citizenship in heaven. Kind of brings an interesting question. People sometimes ask, why, why do people sing all the time at church? I mean, even if you go to like a youth camp, they sing there. You don't find people doing that anywhere else in the world. You don't go to work and you break out in a musical. Do you, kids? I doubt you, students, you go to school and you start walking down the hall and everyone joins in you singing and you're dancing and you're clapping. You know, life's not a musical. So why do we make such an important focus of singing at church? The reason we sing and the reason we worship is because we are saved. And throughout Scripture, singing was the natural response to the greatness and salvation of God. We worship because as 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now, now you have received mercy. Coming back to the text, note in verse 21, the individuals return to Jesus, they're filled with joy. Then Jesus rejects their attention 
or their focus to the joy to eternity. And then notice Jesus joins in with their joy in verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And that word rejoice, which is used several times in these passages or these verses, it means that Jesus was overjoyed. Now, I grew up in church. A lot of you all know that. And almost every church my dad was a pastor at, and I, I, can't, I didn't count them up, but we were in several churches growing up. Every church seemed to have the same portrait of Jesus. And you may have seen this portrait. Well, painting, I guess, and wasn't a photo. It's a side shot. And he's looking up towards the heavens with no facial expression whatsoever. Some sort of senior photo or mug shot of Jesus, I don't know, but he doesn't look overjoyed. When I think of someone being overjoyed and rejoicing, I mean, you kind of see it on kids during Christmas when their eyes light up. They get a big smile. Maybe they squeal. I don't know if Jesus squealed, but they usually laugh and usually embrace people. That's the image we're getting here in verse 21 of Jesus. I don't know exactly how he expressed himself, but it tells me that Jesus wasn't always serious. He laughed. He rejoiced. He celebrated. He exploded with joy. And why did he explode with joy in this moment? It's because these individuals came back and they gave a report. And Jesus was overwhelmed with joy because of their obedience, their faithfulness, and their trust. He gave them every reason to not want to go. Don't take anything else with you. You may get rejected. You can be like lambs among wolves. And then they come back with a great report, and he is overwhelmed with joy. And then his joy, in verse 21, turns to prayer. He's joyced in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Because when we experience joy, our attention should automatically turn to God. Because he is the provider of that joy. The first part of Jesus' prayer in verse 21 is interesting, but it gives us another understanding of why we should have joy, and that's joy for humility. As we've seen throughout this series and throughout the gospel, Jesus is constantly being confronted by the Jewish leaders. They would frequently come to him with this mindset that they had it all together and Jesus was doing it all wrong, that he didn't honor their traditions, he didn't honor their regulations, and therefore their understanding of Jesus is that he's not a man of God. As a matter of fact, he's not even from God. And so when Jesus mentions the wise and the understanding there in the midst of verse 21, he's most likely referring to these men, these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and all the people that followed their teaching. Because the word wise can also be read as arrogant. And the Pharisees were very arrogant. The word understanding can be read as clever educated, or view themselves of a higher class. 
And that's what the Pharisees wanted the Jewish people to think about them. They had it all together. They were the upper tier. Everyone should look to them. But Jesus is rejoicing and he's thanking and he's praising the Father because he didn't choose to reveal the plan of salvation to those individuals who thought highly of themselves or found pride in their education and training. Instead, God chose to reveal his plan of salvation to little children. And that means may sound like an insult for us who are God's people, but the little children, what that is implying is those who are dependent upon God. The Father revealed himself to those who were not dependent on what they thought they knew or accomplished, but instead he revealed himself to those who realized they had to be completely dependent upon him. And this is what the group of 72 has come to realize as they understand the demons submitted to them only because they represented Christ. And their submission was completely dependent upon the name of Jesus. Now, humility is an interesting word because it causes an, calls for an individual to not think highly of themselves, but instead to have a low view of their importance. That's what humility means. Yet this is where we have to be as believers. This is where we have to live because it's not about us, but it's about he who saved us. Jesus said, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In the book of James, we read, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Here's what God says throughout his scriptures about humility and being humble. For you save a humble people. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. The Lord lifts up the humble, but he casts the wicked to the ground. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. To the humble he gives favor. With the humble is wisdom. But this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble, that's the word, right? He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I believe humility is the key for us to loving our neighbor as ourselves. Because we don't think highly about us. We think highly about him. And we humble ourselves. We find joy in being humble because we know we are imitating Christ who humbled himself before the Father to take on the sins of the world. There's joy in humility. People like being around people who have a little bit of humbleness. I know I don't like being around people who are prideful or arrogant. Second part of Jesus' prayer is to speak of Jesus' authority. And those who have come to understand him as Lord and Savior, it seems a strange choice of words that he uses there in verse 22, that God chooses. But it goes back into the context of what Jesus said in verse 21, that there are individuals who won't choose the Father because of what they already think they know and what resources they already have acquired. 
Paul laid it out like this in 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what Paul understood is what Jesus is saying here in our passage is that the message of salvation is going to sound completely ridiculous to people who think they have it all together. The gospel message begins with the understanding that people are a mess because we wrestle with sin and we're born in sin. And the gospel message goes on to say, and we can't fix ourselves. We have a problem, and we don't have the solution. And people in this world who think they have it all together, that's going to sound completely ridiculous, or as Paul says, folly. And this is the root of all the problems in the world. So as God's people, we are to have joy in proclaiming the Father. Jesus rejoiced because the Father was revealing to the world their need for a Savior. It is the Father's desire, His choice, and His wish to reveal to the world their need for Jesus Christ. And the Father's choice is to reveal Christ to the world through His people. We should find joy that God has entrusted us with such a powerful and important task that will impact people's lives for eternity. And after Jesus addresses the crowd... In verses 17 through 20, after he addresses the Father in verses 21 through 22, he turns his attention to the 12 in verses 23 and 24. And turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Here he lets them know the great opportunity they are experiencing and that kings and prophets of old desired to see what they were seeing and hear what they hear. What they were experiencing was something individuals hundreds to thousands of years ago longed for and dreamed for. I mean, we're talking going all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and King David and King Solomon and the prophets of the Old Testament. But now Jesus says, you are seeing and experiencing what your ancestors and what these great men of old longed to see. And if Jesus is our Lord Savior, then you are experiencing things individuals of the Old Testament long for. That's why we should have joy in the experience. There was a fear in the Old Testament that if God's people could not go to the temple, then they couldn't be in the presence of God. They couldn't worship him the way they're called to worship. Matter of fact, this is a driving fear from one of the Psalms. In Psalm 51, the psalmist wrote, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. But here's the thing, under the new covenant as God's people, we don't have to have that fear because if we're a child of God, we're saved by the blood of Christ. God has instilled the Holy Spirit inside of us and scripture says we are now the temple of the living God. Whew. Talk about a God who loves us and is for us. Pray we'd all find joy in our salvation. Pray I would find joy in my salvation every single day because this world just bombards us. And if we get to this time of year where we celebrate Christmas and we get to the holiday season, we got to think about all the places we got to go and all the gifts we got to buy and all the food we got to somehow eat. We can lose focus 
that we are to have joy in the salvation and we have experienced the risen Lord. We have heard his voice. We have seen the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection. We've heard the loving words of the Father and even better, we understood them. Something all the people we read about in the Old Testament. I mean, think of some of those great individuals of the Old Testament. Abraham, the father of the Jews. Moses, who was used by God to bring the Jewish people out of captivity. Joshua, who led an army of people who had 40 years of walking training to go take the promised land. King David, who had a man after God's own heart. King Solomon, who built the temple of God. Think about the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and Micah. Think about some of your favorite individuals like Esther. All these individuals in the Old Testament long to experience what we have experienced in our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so we read those stories and we're in awe and amazement of them, but they are looking at us like, wow, you've got to experience something I never got. They long for the days of Christ, and now we live in the days of Christ. For this reason, as God's people, we should be joy-filled. But perhaps there's someone here today who doesn't have that reason for joy, because Jesus Christ isn't your Lord and Savior. I can change today by recognizing your need for forgiveness of your sins, to find salvation and the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ alone. And God has made it of the utmost importance, but he's also made it incredibly easy. It begins by admitting to God that you are a sinner. That word sin means you fall short. It's similar to our word today when we yell out air ball at a basketball game. You completely miss the mark. And you can't go to church enough, you can't give money to the church, you can't read your Bible enough, sing enough songs, memorize enough scripture to fix the sin problem. But that's why God sent Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate this time of year. That God stepped out of the heavens, he lived a perfect life, he lived up to the mark. He lived according to the word of God and the law of God perfectly. Also, he could die on the cross to take the wrath of God upon him for the sins of the world. And they placed him in a tomb. He rose three days later to show he has the power over death, the power to forgive sins, and the power to grant eternal life. So we admit to God we're a sinner, but then we believe, God, I believe that to be true. I may not understand every aspect of it, but I believe that is true, and I believe you love me that much. And the final thing the Bible says, we must confess. And that word confess, we must make it publicly known. To confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and the promise, if we do that, it says that we will be saved. It's in Romans chapter 10. If you're here this morning and Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, then you have no reason to have joy. But that can change this morning. I'm going to be standing down here, and if you need to come down, you should say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. I guarantee you there will be people in this room rejoicing with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for 
just always being with us, the promise that nothing can separate us from you, nothing can separate us from your love. And because of the power of what you did through your son, Jesus Christ, and you've given us your spirit, we are now more than conquerors. You prevailed so we could. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning who needs to begin a relationship with you found only through Jesus Christ, I pray your spirit grabs a hold of their heart in this moment. And when we stand up to sing that they walk down this aisle and today becomes the day of their salvation. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. But Lord, let us now respond to what you've laid before us. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.